coming up this week on the EV Resource Podcast, new electric minis, Polestar 2 has yet another recall, the Rivian R1T finally gets an official off-road review and does pretty well, and much more. Hello, friends, and welcome back to episode 39 of the EV Resource Podcast. I'm Zach Hurst, and each week I bring you the latest EV news, information, and answers to your questions about electric vehicles. I've got nine news stories lined up for you this week, so we are going to go through them rather quickly, starting off with the news of an electric mini onslaught. The Cooper SE is currently Mini's only fully electric model, but it won't be for long. For the first time, Mini has outlined plans to expand its current electric car range and boost its EV sales in China, which is the world's largest electric auto market. According to Bernd Kober, the head of Mini, he says, quote, Mini was always the answer to very special challenges relating to individual mobility, and the willingness to reinvent the status quo continues to shape the brand to this day. Alongside electromobility, harnessing new target groups and sales markets will be crucially important for the future of Mini, end quote. According to a report by CarBuzz, in the next few years, Mini's fully electric lineup will include the Mini three-door hatch, a new crossover in the small car segment, and a compact crossover model. While the dimensions of these new crossovers haven't been officially announced, it does sound like Mini could be cooking up a new Tesla Model Y rival, which would be a smart move by them. I mean, honestly, with the Tesla Model Y and the ID4 from Volkswagen, uh, even the Mach-E, you know, that is what at least U.S. consumers seem to be really wanting to buy that mid-size crossover SUV uh, segment. So it, it's going to be a crowded segment, but honestly, depending on the specs, I think Mini's got a good chance there. We should expect the specs to be bit better than their current model, the SE hatchback, or the Cooper SE hatchback. It has an electric motor producing 181 horsepower and 199 pound-feet of torque, which enables it to go 0 to 62 miles per hour in 7.3 seconds and achieve a top speed of 93 miles an hour. Actually, that's very, very similar to uh, my Spark EV. Now, as far as the range goes, the Cooper SE is rated at only 110 miles. So certainly if they expect to have success in the U.S. market, they're going to need to work on improving and lengthening the range that the vehicles can go. Moving on to a story from Car and Driver about the Polestar 2, they report that all Polestar 2s have been recalled for a software glitch that can shut down the EV while driving, and the issue affects nearly 2,200 vehicles worldwide. Unfortunately, according to Polestar, it can't be fixed with an over-the-air software update. The Polestar 2's only been on the road for a few months around the world, and unfortunately, it's already experiencing some new car issues. The Volvo and Geely-owned electric vehicle startup has recalled all 2,189 Polestar 2 cars after several vehicles lost power while driving. That is not an issue you want to have. Uh, Polestar sent Car and Driver the following statement, quote, We issued a voluntary safety recall for the Polestar 2 after we investigated, verified, and developed a solution for an issue reported by a small number of customers. A fault in the logic of the battery energy control module requires a manual software update to be rectified. A total of 2,189 potentially affected registered customer vehicles in Europe and China are being recalled, end quote. 
Owners of Polestar 2s have been informed by the automaker to take their vehicles to a local service center to have the vehicle software updated to resolve the issue. Because no Polestar 2 EVs have been delivered yet to North America, the issue hasn't hit the U.S., and it's likely that when those vehicles do end up in our neck of the woods, the issue will have already been fixed. We can only hope. Uh, the Polestar is not the first EV to experience this type of glitch. Uh, in 2016, both the Fiat 500e and the Volkswagen e-Golf had software issues that could cause those vehicles to shut off. Hopefully, it's something that they can get fixed quickly and move past this speed bump on the road to electrification. Moving on to Rivian. Uh, this is a story coming from Jalopnik. They are saying that the first off-road review of the 2021 Rivian R1T calls it an extremely capable game-changer. The fully electric 2021 R1T midsize pickup will not go into production until at least next summer, but a pre-production model has just completed the off-road Rebel Rally. Driver M. Hall's review proclaims the truck to be nothing short of game-changing. Rivian entered a pre-production R1T pickup equipped with the optional 135 kilowatt hour battery pack, which is claimed to be capable of a 300 mile range. There are four electric motors, two at the front, two at the rear, capable of spinning the 34 inch Pirelli Scorpion tires with combined 754 horsepower and 826 pound feet of torque. The ground clearance maxes out at 14.5 inches with a 34.8 degree approach and 29.3 departure angle. The breakover angle is 25.7 degrees. I have no idea what I just read. Uh, hopefully those of you who are into off-roading will understand. Well, I get the approach angle and departure angle. That makes sense. The breakover angle, I don't know what that is. So uh, if you're into off-road, uh, off-roading and off-road vehicles, uh, hopefully all of that means a lot more to you than it does to me. Now, as Hall pointed out, that geometry actually outclasses the current Ford F-150 Raptor, which we know to be very capable off-road, and the new Ram 1500 TRX. Now, the thing about the R1T is that it's very heavy. The total weight of the R1T that was provided was at least 6,400 pounds. The truck started out at 5,886 pounds and then was decked out with camping gear for two, five liters of water, tools, a jack, two spare wheels and tires and other spare parts for this journey. Max Tracks recovery boards for the shift lights were tucked into the bed tunnel that offers 11.7 cubic feet of storage, and all of that definitely added some weight. Things that were notable were Rivian's air suspension uh, that managed the 1,200-mile 10-day journey rather well being able to have regenerative braking off-road, and ultimately charging. Now, considering the extent of this road test or off-road test and the limitations of charging infrastructure where there really isn't anything, it was necessary to have specialized support network just for the R1T. The Rivian was met along its journey at planned stops by a Power Innovations Mobile Energy Command semi-truck capable of delivering a recharge rate of up to 130 kilowatts. It replenished the battery to 80% in about 30 minutes. That just goes to show that if you're going to go off-road, make sure you've planned how that's all going to work. Now on to the Mustang Mach-E. Exciting news that Mach-E production will start in December. According to Electrive, Ford apparently wants to start serious production of the purely electric Mustang Mach-E this December 2020. 
As buyers of the model report in forums, they have received emails from Ford with a concrete production date for their particular model. The earliest confirmed date is December 7th. Ford previously announced that the Mustang Mach-E would be available in the U.S. from the end of 2020, even though larger quantities are not going to be delivered until 2021. The electric compact SUV is considered a potential competitor to the Tesla Model Y. Uh, Honestly, at this point, anything in that segment is going to be compared to the Tesla Model Y because the Tesla Model Y is the only one that's really out and right now that you can buy. Uh, But ultimately, I think there's plenty of room and really the Mustang Mach-E is probably going to take more customers away from gas-powered SUV and crossover driver uh, owners than, you know, taking anything away from Tesla. And that's something that we I won't get into, but it, it certainly seems like everybody wants to say they're competing with Tesla, or at least the news media seems to want to think that. But the real competition is gas and diesel vehicles. Now, in Europe, the Mustang Mach-E is scheduled for launch at the beginning of next year. An exact date, however, is not yet known. Nothing's been revealed. Prices in Germany are starting at just shy of 47,000 euros for the basic version. And then, of course, um, about 20,000 more for the first edition. I personally am looking forward to seeing the Mach-E in person. I've actually been to the local Ford dealership a couple times just to get an understanding of timeline and what they expect, uh, even for customer vehicles, when they expect to have something on the lot that I might be able to uh, take a look at and, and take some photos of. We'll be back after a quick break. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. Next, coming from Autoblog, they are reporting that Chevy is Chevy Performance, more specifically, has built an electric K5 Blazer, an old, I think it was 1960s or 19, no, sorry, 1977 K5 Chevy Blazer, completely restored, but with an E-Crate motor package. They're calling it an E-Crate motor. Last year, Chevy Performance did give us a glimpse at the future of what they were working with with these electric crate motors when they revealed an E10 concept truck. Now, at the time, Chevy was really vague about when we might actually see these electric crate motors and batteries on sale. This year, the company is back with their 1977 K5 Blazer converted using a near-production crate motor kit that's slated to go on sale next year. The electric motor is not one of the modular motors shown last year, but simply a Chevy Bolt EV motor, making the same 200 horsepower and 266 pound-feet of torque as the little hatchback. That, honestly, is a little disappointing. If you're going to have a crate motor and and convince people to purchase a package to convert their muscle cars or old trucks or whatever, you're going to need more power and especially more torque than that. I mean, I would say even maybe twice as much. And and same goes for the battery pack. They're offering it with the 60 kilowatt hour bolt battery pack, 400 volts. Same motor controllers, power inverters, battery cooling and management systems, and everything are all all used. From a manufacturing standpoint and a business standpoint, sure, that makes sense that 
obviously the more of that equipment that they can sell, you know, it's an economy of scale, then everything becomes less expensive overall. Um, but it's just, it's the power output there is disappointing. I mean, are you really going to convert an old muscle car to electric, make it potentially heavier depending on, um, you know, what you're working with, but then only have 200 horsepower? Um or 266 pound feet of torque. I mean, the the bolt, at least the one that I tested, was doing zero to sixty in about you know low seven seconds. I, I I don't know. I think there's a disconnect between what they're offering and their potential uh, market <laughs> that they're trying to sell this to. Uh, now they are saying that while the kit will be offered to private customers, Chevy Performance is going a step further and offer training and installation and service of these systems to dealers and aftermarket companies and shops. Now that is very important and I, I definitely support that. The part that you're probably questioning right now is, okay, even if you wanted this, how much is it going to cost? And unfortunately, I don't have an answer for you because pricing has not yet been announced for the package, but they do say that they plan to start selling it in the second half of next year. So we should probably get pricing closer to that time. The company didn't say anything about modular motors it featured last year, but it did say that it's looking at offering additional E-Crate options with more power and likely eventually offer them with Ultium batteries that will be used in the GMC Hummer EV and the Cadillac Lyric. Moving on to Ram, Fiat Chrysler and their Ram brand, of course, is all about trucks and uh, smaller commercial vans. Fiat Chrysler's CEO, Mike Manley, announced that they have a plan to make an all-electric Ram pickup truck. Now, Fiat Chrysler does not currently have a fully electric vehicle in its lineup for the United States and North America, although it's planning electric versions of not only the Maserati Gran Turismo and Gran Cabrio sports cars, as well as the new MC20 supercar. And of course, I've mentioned the plug-in hybrid Jeep Wrangler 4xe uh, that, of course, is supposed to arrive in dealerships early next year. So we're not sure exactly when the Ram EV, which probably will be based on the 1500 pickup truck, will arrive. Um, Rams has not exactly been providing any further details. Uh, we found out about this, of course, because Fiat Chrysler's CEO, Mike Manley, announced that Ram will add an electric pickup to its lineup during their third quarter earnings call. Of course, this is also a very competitive segment. I mean, Ford has announced their F-150, both hybrid and full EV that they're working on. The GMC Hummer EV, which I talked about the last two episodes. And then you've got other startups, Rivian, Bollinger, of course, Tesla with the Cybertruck, which is definitely kind of on the fringe of that uh, mainstream market just because of its styling. I mean, certainly the specs are more capable than anything else that I've seen. But you know, uh, it's it's styling is certainly controversial. And then Lordstown and Lordstown this week actually posted a video of its endurance pickup truck in a tug of war with the Ford F-150 4x4. So take away the argument that it was a rear wheel drive F-150 like Tesla showed with the Cybertruck doing a tug of war. And Lordstown actually shared a video of this. You can find it I mean, you could Google search or even look on uh, YouTube, Lordstown Endurance versus F-150, and it'll pull right up. Now, when comparing them, they, they did this test in the middle of a field. So it's dirt, it's grass, 
uh, traction is going to be an issue. I imagine that if they did this on asphalt or even concrete, that the results might not have been as extreme. Uh, as you can expect, the Lordstown Endurance just... <laughs> It kind of, you could say it destroys the F-150. Now, the F-150 that was used was using the 2.7 liter EcoBoost V6. So it's not even the uh, V8 F-150. But either way, uh, of course, the EV truck does very well. It's easy to be skeptical when looking at a video like this, and I'm sure that you can hear that in my tone of voice. Uh, But watching the video, you know, it, it looks like the Endurance actually engages first, which Lordstown said that's because EV motors typically will uh, respond quicker than gas-powered vehicles, which is true, but that doesn't change the fact that they don't start pulling at the same time. So I don't know. Um, It's interesting. Like, How do you do a test like this fairly without you know, highlighting the benefits of an EV. I mean, obviously, responsiveness is going to be a benefit of the EV. So if you take that off the table, you know, what are you really trying to show from a test like this? Are you trying to show pure grunt? Well, we know that EVs have more torque than gas-powered vehicles, especially the EcoBoost, which is a turbo V6. It's not made, I mean, the F-150 wasn't made as a torque machine for that power configuration. You want torque, you know, go with the, the V8. Yet another video that is just, okay, that's great, but, you know, what what are we really saying? You know, what are we really showing? And and I think it's, once you start digging a little bit, it's, it's kind of a shallow example of what EVs can do. Moving on to something else, I've been very skeptical this week, and I'm not alone with this. Uh, the Tesla fan base has certainly erupted with either laughter or extreme criticism, Consumer Reports this week reported that Cadillac and GM's Super Cruise driver assist software outperforms Tesla's autopilot. And they're saying this because it all comes down to driver attention monitoring. Now, Cadillac's and GM's Super Cruise might not get the same amount of real estate in the general public's mind when it comes to advanced driver assistance systems as Tesla's autopilot does. But Consumer Reports announced some new research Wednesday that might change that. And according to Kyle Hyatt of CNET's Roadshow, he says that is probably not going to take much space in the public mind because Tesla's really aced the marketing and branding uh, of those systems. But Consumer Reports did find the Super Cruise to be appreciably better at its job than systems from Tesla, Volvo, Nissan, and others. And how much better, you might ask? Well, it actually 12 points better on than autopilot on a 100-point scale. Specifically, Consumer Reports research focused on situations where lane-keeping assist and adaptive cruise control would be working together to control a vehicle independent of driver input. It included any company's suite of systems so as long as it had both of those features, regardless of that company's claimed level of automation, which means that it actually tested 17 total systems as a part of this study. So I, for one, have not actually ever used Super Cruise, so I don't have any personal experience to rely on. I have used Autopilot um, quite a bit, but... They're actually saying that the big difference here is with driver attention monitoring. Most systems rely on steering wheel torque, and Teslas are along with that, or you can spin the little dial if you're in a Model 3 or a Model Y to verify that the driver's paying attention. Um, 
However, that can easily be overcome by, you know, buying some sort of weight or attaching something to the steering wheel to apply just a little bit of torque. But Super Cruise uses cameras to but Super Cruise uses cameras to actively monitor the position of the driver's eyes while the system is engaged, guaranteeing that their focus is where where it needs to be for safe, hands-free operation. If the system catches drivers not looking where they should be, the system will attempt to warn the driver by flashing lights on the steering wheel, among other things, and if that doesn't work, the car will then start to slow and eventually stop itself. It'll also call for emergency assistance. William Wallace, no, not the uh, Scott of Braveheart fame, um, but William Wallace, who is the manager of safety policy for Consumer Reports, said in a statement, quote, the evidence is clear. If a car makes it easier for people to take their attention off the road, they are going to do so with potentially deadly consequences. It's critical for active driver assistance systems to come with safety features that actually verify drivers are paying attention and are ready to take action at all times. Otherwise, these systems' safety risks could end up outweighing their benefits, end quote. Now, even Tesla, who does not have a monitoring system for the driver in terms of looking where the eyeballs are uh, directed. Even Tesla's autopilot and, of course, their full self-driving, which isn't actually self-driving, system is safer than traditional human pilot, if you will. So regardless of the approach, I do think that these driver assistance features and systems make us all safer in total. Now, do I like the idea of having a system that's kind of a nanny that makes sure that you're paying attention while you're using it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess I'm, I haven't quite made up my mind on that yet. But uh, certainly it seems like Consumer Reports has their mind made up. And the last story for you, I know we've already gone through eight. So the last news story is about Tesla but not about their cars. And certainly being an EV podcast, this might seem a little strange, but uh, I like to occasionally point out specifically with Tesla that they are much, much more than just a, a car company. They are an energy company as well. Now, in an article by Clean Technica two days ago, they remind us about Elon saying that Tesla's energy business will one day be equal to or exceed its automotive business. And that may be a day that happens sometime in the future, but right now the company is clearly expanding its solar and battery operations very rapidly, both for grid scale operations, you know, the really large commercial and industrial scale. Um, I think New South Wales, they have a massive thing. And then, of course, California, they're doing another, but then also residential applications Last week, Michael Snyder, who is Tesla's Director of Engineering and Construction for Energy Products, posted on LinkedIn, uh, quote, if you like solving problems at the nexus of power systems interactions, protection coordination, system and product level controls, and DERs, check out the link below for a microgrid-focused product engineer. We have 120-plus operational microgrids around the world with high impact to a variety of communities and customers. This is a unique and rewarding role, end quote. And that post was followed by a link to apply for a position with Tesla Energy, certainly one that I'm not going to apply to because I didn't understand what half of those things are. <laughs> but one thing I do understand is that it's very clear that Tesla is looking to 
further expand into solar microgrids and virtual power plants. And it does seem like that's the case because they've recently teamed up with Octopus Energy in the UK to offer homeowners the ability to take part in a virtual power plant program. Now, there are a few prerequisites, of course. The homeowner must already own a Tesla electric car and home charger, and then a rooftop solar system and Tesla Powerwall needs to be added to the home. And according to Bloomberg News, Tesla claims its offer represents a 75% savings compared to its competitors. So the program means that then homes can generate, store, and then return solar energy to the grid during peak times. That is huge for energy providers because, of course, we know it costs so much to spin up a peaker power plant where if you can use solar energy that's been stored in batteries at those times, it decreases those costs and ultimately provides savings for not only the homeowner, but everybody across the board including the energy provider. So it's very obvious that the renewable energy revolution is in full swing. It will involve decentralized power generation as well as enhanced long-distance transmission lines. Nothing is off the table. Tesla is creating an enormous virtual power plant in Australia that will incorporate rooftop solar and battery storage at 50,000 homes. And Green Mountain Power is conducting their own similar program in Vermont. Just as one day soon, electric vehicle sales will surpass the sales of conventional vehicles, our grandkids will likely grow up in homes that have residential storage batteries in the garage or in the basement next to the electrical panel. Tesla is leading the way in electric cars and will soon be a leader in clean energy as well. So that's your show for this week. Thank you, as always, to everyone who supports the EV Resource Podcast, either by simply listening or sharing with your friends, and especially those who support us on Patreon. You can find us there at patreon.com slash EV Resource. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Our Patreon executive producer is Tom Wiggins, and a special thanks to our partner of the podcast, Titan Auto Entire, for their support. Titan is one of the very few independent shops in Virginia that are qualified to work on EVs, and from hybrids to Hummers, they fix everything. I invite your feedback for the podcast via email to hello at ev-resource.com. You can always leave a comment on the YouTube video, and don't forget to subscribe so that you'll get the future shows delivered to you automatically. If you want to listen to any of the previous podcasts, you can find them on our webpage under the podcast section and on many of the major podcast platforms. Thank you so much for being with me, and I'll catch you next week. 